In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, it just so happens that 40 years ago this summer, Steven Spielberg released a film, a rollicking adventure that crosses continents and uh, takes you through uh, scene after scene of great danger. But what binds the film together and what everyone is interested in is finding one thing. Raise your hand if you've never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Never have. I, I, I applaud your courage. Even if you've never seen it, you've probably seen iconic images from it, but that is the Ark. It's the Ark that God commissions Israel to fashion. It's the Ark that Israel carries with it for all of its wilderness journeys until it finally comes to a place of rest. They all want the Ark. And the reason I, 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 I play that clip for you is because if you will... If you've seen it, then you know that there are multiple constituencies that are interested in finding it. And I would just say to you that all of them are seeking it for reasons that don't accord with what it really is. Now, there's the Nazis. What do the Nazis want the Ark for? They want it for power. And then there's Indy's French archaeologist competitor, Belloc, and he wants the Ark but he wants it for the prestige of having discovered it. Nazis want it for power. He wants it for prestige. Indiana Jones, of all of them, perhaps the purest motivations behind why he's seeking the Ark, but, but you know why he wants it? Not for the power, not for the prestige, but for the progress of knowledge. Here's an ancient artifact that in the last, next to the last scene of the film must be researched. All of them are in search of the Ark, all of them want the ark for different reasons, but none of them want it for what it really is. And I use that film and that analysis of the film, as crude as it may be, to draw an analogy. That what is true of everybody in that film about seeking something in opposition to what it really is, you and I, can seek God for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with who he really is. That we can misunderstand him so profoundly that our image of him is drastically and deeply distorted. And here's an example. And teenagers, this is going to sound like I'm a bust on you. I'm not, because what's true of you is true of your parents and of every adult in this room. But there was a survey that went out about 15 years ago by a sociologist named Christian Smith. And he surveyed 3,000 teenagers from across multiple faith traditions, and just ask them, what do you believe about God? Tell me about your faith. Tell me about what you know about the Lord. And he gets all sorts of fantastic answers that are really telling about what they believe. So just listen to a, a few of them. Here's one from a 17-year-old in Utah. I believe in, well, my whole religion is where you try to be good, and uh, if you're not good, then you should just try to get better. That's all. Another kid, a guy from Colorado. I believe there's a God, so sometimes when I'm in trouble or I'm in danger, then, then I'll start thinking about that. Here's a, a boy from Texas. Well, God is almighty, I guess. And he yawns. He yawns to the questioner. I guess God is almighty, but I think he's on vacation right now because of all the junk that's happening in the world because it wasn't like this back when he was famous. 
Matt Minier. Yeah. And then one more. Uh, a young man from Ohio. God is an overall ruler who controls everything. So like if I'm depressed or something and things aren't going my way, I blame it on him. I don't know why. I blame it on him. Telling stuff. Honest stuff. Grateful to hear honest answers. But when the the sociologists put those 3,000 answers into their little sociological hopper, they come up with a phrase to summarize how most teenagers think about God. And they came up with this mouthful. Ready? Here it is. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Don't be be afraid. Hold, Hold my hand. It's not complicated. Moralistic just means people believe that God just made them so that they would be good and nice and fair. That's what moralistic means. Therapeutic means I think God wants me to be happy and to be okay with myself. He wants my life to be good. In other words, therapeutic, almost like a therapist. And the deism thing, to circle back to our American history, there were a lot of our founding fathers who were deists. They believed in a God, but they kind of believed in a God, kind of like a coach on the back um, row of bleachers at practice who never says anything anytime, just watches the the game unfolds and occasionally barks orders. But God is kind of, you know, in the words of the Bette Midler song, God is watching us from a distance. That's deism. There, but not really involved. That's, that's how people conceive of God. That's how those teenagers conceived of God. Okay, I'm telling you teenagers, this is not about coming at you because I would dare say that that is true of anybody. We're all capable of reducing God to Uh, to this moralistic, therapeutic, deistic version. And hopefully when you hear all that, you think, yeah, that's a little off. So what does it mean to know the God who is as we understand him from Scripture and not just from some some intuitions that we have? That's our burden this morning. This morning we're going to listen to the very longest psalm in all of these songs of ascents. We've been listening to, to... Israel's greatest hits all summer, and this one's the longest, and I'm going to tell you, this one was hard. I wrote it once, and then I hated it, and I wrote it again, and after you hear it, you may think, well, maybe third time will be a charm, but it is telling a story of Israel's attempt to establish a place in which God might be worshipped as he is, not as whom we would make him out to be, and hopefully by the end, We're going to hear three things from this passage that I think get to the heart of who God is. Three things that we must understand about him if we're to understand him at all. Three things. That he is a God of promise, that he is a God of presence, and that he is a God of peace. Promise, presence, peace. Stretch your legs, and if you will, stand up and let's hear Psalm 132. Our central text for today is found in Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, 
We heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This, this is, is the, the word, word of, of the Lord. Lord. Thanks be to God. You may say, I told you it was a mouthful. It's a lot there. This is a, a psalm about two oaths. An oath that David makes to the Lord and an oath that the Lord makes to David. But it tells a long story. And um, in order to help you to have the right frame of mind in which to hear the backstory that leads us to figure out things about God. I want you to remember a day in which maybe when you were really young and you went to grandma's and you sat down on her couch with the Afghan and she pulled the large scrapbook from her shelf and you already went, oh no. And, and she pulled it out and began to show you all of these pictures from when she was younger things that she could tell you your story. And, and at some point, maybe in the conversation, she goes, now this is the day when we were canning peaches and your grandfather stepped on a squirrel, right? There was a moment like that. And you're the kid and you're going, oh my gosh. And you know what your mom did in that moment? You want to talk about burning eyes. I'm going to burn, I'm going to burn. You listen to that. You listen to that story, right? Don't be that kid that wanders off going, oh God, this is so tedious, right? I'm going to give you a little backstory here to understand this passage. So don't be that kid. Okay? Don't, um, you think I'm doing this. Look at the Lord, right? Um, here's the deal. Here's the backstory. Um, what's going on? David will not sleep. He is not going to rest until a fitting and permanent place in which the Lord might be worshipped is established. He will not sleep. And that has a backstory to it. In 2 Samuel 7, this is in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, David says, man, how is it that I'm living in a palace made from cedar while the ark of God sits in the middle of a tent? How can I be in this nice place and, and, and the Lord's worship place is sort of blowing in the wind? Um, when we go camping in our RV sometimes, occasionally our children will like to set up a tent outside the RV and sleep, you know, in the tent. And there are a few moments in which my wife and I have a certain sympathy 
for them that they are subjecting themselves to the elements. And then the moment passes and we turn over and we sleep dreamily. But in that moment, thank you, in that moment, David will not sleep. He, he cannot handle the disparity between where he lives and where he believes the ark of God should be. And so he devotes himself. He says, I will be the one to build it. And so you hear in 1 Chronicles 22 him say, I have gathered everything to provide it, gold and silver and bronze and iron. I will do it. Because look, he, he believes God is worthy of that place. The Lord has has fought for him against Goliath. He has protected David against Saul. He has anointed him to lead Israel. He feels like the Lord is worthy of this place that is befitting his name. And so he does it. And the Lord says to him, I'm so delighted that you do, but it's not going to be you. One of your descendants will build it. So that means David will be the supplier. He will not be the GC, the general contractor. He will not be that person. Somebody else is going to do it. And even so, even so, he will not be the one to build the temple. He is still going to participate in bringing to fruition what will be at the centerpiece of that worship. And what is that thing? The ark. The ark that the Nazis and Belloc and Indiana Jones and Salah all wanted. They wanted the ark. The ark. The ark will be that thing that God commands Israel to fashion, that Israel carries about it wherever it goes. It gets stolen by the Philistines sort of as God's rebuke to Israel's disobedience. And then the Philistines discover the business end of the ark. They freak out. They drop it off in Beth Shemesh. And David sends a cohort to go pick it up and bring it. And so David gets it, retrieves it, strips half naked, dances before it, that he's so delighted to have it, and, and provides the most poignant moment in all of Footloose. Right? David danced before the Lord, the kid says, right? And then... And then David brings it into Jerusalem, and there it will sit, and there it will be the centerpiece of the temple. It will be the place, the holiest place. That's the ark. Now, uh, even if you don't know much about the ark, you probably know what it's called. It's called the ark of the covenant, right? What's a covenant? It's a promise. You know, kids, they do pinky swears, they do blood oaths. Uh, brides and grooms, they look at each other and they make vows, all of those promises. What does the Lord do? He says, make this ark. This ark will be a symbol and yet something far more, a symbol of this truth. That God is a God of promises. That's the first thing you got to get. That's the first thing we have to get if we're going to think of God as he is and not as we would want him to be. God is a God of promises. That's the first thing to know. What goes inside the ark? It's not just for outward adornment. What goes inside of it? The law, the tablets of stone. And what did that signify? That there would be a promise. Blessing comes with hearing and obeying. What else goes in that ark? Aaron's staff. And it buds. It buds miraculously. Why? To signify that Aaron and the Levites would be the priesthood of God. And what else is in there? An urn of manna. The manna that fell somehow from heaven to feed Israel in its wilderness wanderings. And what did that signify? God's promise to provide. Everything about the ark is out to signify one thing. That God is a God of promises. When you write love letters to each other, you keep the letters and you stare at the letters sometimes. You just stare at them. You read them 10 times. You could recite it. 
without even having to look at it, but you stare at it to remember of that kind of faithfulness that somebody is offering you. When you have a ring on your finger, if you are married, that is a signification of the fact that there is faithfulness that is promised to you. That's what the ark is for Israel. A continual reminder that God makes and keeps promises. What has he promised? Because, look, like Andrew prayed during the song, like I tried to pray before we worshiped, before we, before we did the sermon, there's all sorts of things that are falling apart. There's probably a lot of you that's falling apart. So, you know, what is his promise? I think if you read the entirety of Scripture, you could boil down all of his promises into two words, two prepositions. With and for. What has he promised? To be with them, to be for them. Do you believe that? Do you struggle with that? In the darkness, in the struggle, in the confusion, do you believe that he is with you? When you are up against ridicule or malice or hatred, do you still believe that he is for you? Now, no doubt, there are plenty of moments in which God would seem to be very much against Israel, against them, going after them, right? The reason the ark gets stolen by the Philistines is God's rebuke to Israel. So he's against them, but why is he against them? In the same way that a parent might grab a kid by the shoulders and say, do you know what you're doing to yourself? It's, it's, a, it's a way of being against that is at the same time very much for. And that's why at the same time that I ask you in all those moments, when, when, you have, when you've gotten the worst news possible, do you believe that he is with you? When someone has harmed you to no end, do you still believe that he is for you? And, and in that same vein, I might say this, if you have, if you have committed the most grievous error Do you still believe that he is for you? These are the, the promises that he has made that the ark was meant to be a symbol of, as a reminder of. And, and therefore, the ark is there, which is lost to us. And then what, what are we to do? I'm, I'm, we're here, we're applying last week's sermon. Do you take your heart in hand and address it and remind yourself that he is both with you and for you? He's a God of promises. And unless we get that, we don't get him. There's a second thing we learn, though. Not only that he is a God of promise, but that he is a God of presence. Now, David is not the one to build the temple. Solomon would do that. And you hear in verse 8, which is also recited in 2 Chronicles, a, the end of a prayer that Solomon offers once the temple is complete. So now we're fast-forwarding to the point in which David wanted to build it. Now Solomon is the king, and now Solomon builds it, and now Solomon is dedicating it. And there in verse 8, you hear Solomon say, Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. See, the ark is really heavily here. That's why I did the clip, right? And you hear that for a second, you go, okay, wait a minute. Rise, Lord, go to your resting place? Wait, I, 
I thought God was everywhere. Why does God need to go anywhere? Like that somewhere he's not, and then he needs to go somewhere where he ought to be. Here, go, come sit, sit here, sit in this famous place. Why? Well, what does God promise in verse 12 after he has promised that he would let one of David's heirs be on the throne forever? He says, for Zion will be my dwelling place. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. Okay. If you were listening carefully, at the beginning of our worship service, you heard Paul say about God, that God does not live in temples made by hands. And now we hear all of this language of God, hey, arise. In other translations, it's ascend. Go dwell here. Let this be a resting place. What's the truth of it? What's going on? Isn't God everywhere? How can he go anywhere? Here's the point. All that language, arise, sit, dwell. What is it out to suggest? That God has a presence. That God is a God of presence, that he is more than an idea. He's more than just a a source of wisdom. There is an enormous difference between the picture of grandma on the wall and her being in your presence in the living room. They're both signifying something that's true, but there's a qualitative difference between them. And so all of this language about God rising and going, it's all to suggest this, that there is an awareness that we come to have of Him, an awareness of His reality. He's the way maker. It's what you you sang. We talk about this stuff during the week. Which song will go well here? This song will go well here. It sure does. Even when we don't sense His activity, that He is making a way. There is a presence to Him. There is a sense of him. When when Jacob is having his dream about the ladder from heaven, descending from heaven, the Jacob's ladder as it comes to be made, he wakes up from his dream and he says out loud, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. The idea that we become aware of his reality, of his activity, of his truth, of his goodness, but mostly in a sense that we are not alone. Ellie Arroway is an astronomer that works for the Search for Extraterrestrial Life in a film. She's played by Jodie Foster in a film called Contact. And through all of her research, she, she picks up a signal from a very remote location that is sending back signals in binary fashion. Binary code, which suggests there's an intelligence there. And you know, it's a sci-fi film, so at some point, somebody has built a machine in order for her to be able to make contact with this alien presence. And she suits up like an astronaut, and the moment happens, and she has this contact. And it lasts for about 18 hours. She goes through the wormhole, has the contact, and somehow is returned back to Earth. And it lasts for 18 hours. And when she gets back, everybody goes, I'm sorry it didn't work. And she goes, what are you talking about? It it certainly worked. I was there for 18 hours. And they said, no, it wasn't. That lasted three seconds. And as you would expect, all the data tapes and the sound tapes erased. 
So now she's got her story, and they've got theirs. And so she goes before a congressional hearing to make a case for what only she saw, and here's what she says. I had an experience. I can't prove it. I can't even explain it. But everything that I know as a human being, everything that I am tells me that it was real. I was given something wonderful, something that changed me forever. A vision of the universe that tells us undeniably how tiny and insignificant and how rare and precious we all are. A vision that tells us that we belong to something that is greater than ourselves, that we are not, that none of us are alone. I could share that. I wish that everyone, if even for one moment, could feel that awe and humility and hope. But <laughs> that continues to be my wish. To have come into the presence of something that confirms to her that she is not alone and she is left awed and humble. It's a very different movie, talking about a very different subject, but I think it very much connects with the idea that God is a presence. He's more than an idea. And therefore, I might say to us, if he's a presence, do we seek him? Now, Surely what she sought, she had no idea what she would encounter, and she didn't know what she would encounter until she was found by it. But here's the question I put to myself as I put to you. If he really is a presence, do I seek it? Do I seek him? Not the experience. Not, I'm not going for ecstasy. But do I seek him as a person? Or is just a picture on the wall? Are we as desperate to gather in his presence, as we like to say around here, as David was in building a temple? And if we are not, what does that indicate about what we believe about him? If he is a presence, he is one we seek. Look, friends, I know my brain. My brain likes the dopamine hit from this more often than my heart wants to seek the presence of the Lord. Maybe that's why we're preoccupied. He's a presence. And he has one last thing. Not only a God of promise, not only a God of presence, but one other thing, and if you look really carefully at that moment when Indy and Sulla are hoisting up the ark, you notice the, the, the winged creatures that are there on the top of the ark. That's called the cherubim. You know, the cherubim from like Isaiah 6. But what the cherubim are covering are something, something called the caparet on the top of the ark. And the caparet is translated as the mercy seat. Why? Once a year, the high priest and the high priest alone, once the temple was built, would go behind the veil and enter into the Holy of Holies 
And to that ark, upon that ark, and upon that mercy seat, he would sprinkle blood. The blood of a bull. Why? To make atonement for the sins of Israel. Israel was in need of mercy. Here was the means by which they would find mercy. And therefore, wherever is, where, where Israel sought what had been lost because of sin, and what they'd lost because of sin is one thing, peace. And on that day, this was an attempt to restore that peace, to believe that their sins would not be held against them, to be reminded that they belonged to him, to be reminded that he was both with them and for them, and to believe that he would not withhold his presence from them in spite of their sin. That's why the blood was sprinkled on the caparet on the ark. That's why it was the mercy seat. And what does that all suggest to us? That even more than understanding certain facts about God, the most crucial thing is our relationship with him. And so easily can that relationship be marred that something must restore it. And it has to come through mercy, through forgiveness. If you have harmed someone deeply, if you have offended them, you want not just to rewind the tape, you want to recover something that has been lost as a consequence, and that thing is peace. You want the fellowship that you had. And in order for that peace to be restored, the one who is harmed will have to forgive and that forgiveness will come at a cost to them. It's not a snap of a finger. You don't just tell somebody, forgive them, and they'll go like, right, done. It will cost them. It will expend something from them to give up on holding something against them. It will cost them something to refuse to indulge the resentment that they might feel as a consequence of the harm. And none of that is easy, and all of that is at cost, and it will take something from them. But in that is mercy. And that's what we find happening at the mercy seat. Friends, the ark is not only lost to Indiana Jones, it's lost to us. We don't know where it is. It's most likely not in some warehouse in Washington, D.C., though. But here's a punchline. What we associate with God in the lost ark, we have in one who cannot be lost to us. The reason we had Melissa read you that passage from John chapter 2 is because in that moment, Jesus is having as much zeal for the worship of the temple as David was. And his disciples look on and they end up seeing what they're seeing and they, and they remember something else from another psalm. Zeal for his house will consume him. He is consumed in that moment. He wants worship to be available to all, Jew or Gentile. And he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. They think he's talking about the physical temple sitting behind him. He's talking about himself. The ark we no longer have we have in Jesus, in his entirety. He is the promise. He is the presence. He is our peace. And we look to him for that. And, and though he was as zealous for the worship of God as David was, he gave more than gold and silver and bronze and iron. He gave flesh and blood and bone. That you and I might know him and understand him and somehow 
by grace to delight in him. Because, friends, by his living in the way that he lived and in the way that he died, this is what he did for us. He confirmed to us that God is a God of promises. If God is for us, who can be against us, Paul says. By his living and by his dying, he confirms to us that God is a God of presence because he gives us his spirit. And what does his spirit do? It bears witness with our spirit, convincing us that we belong to him. And by his living and by his dying, he confirms to us that he is a God of peace because by his death, the mercy is forever extended to us and it doesn't happen to happen every year. And it doesn't happen to have have to happen through the the spilling of blood by a bull. His blood, one time, all sin, forever. He's the God of peace. And we have that. And I ask you, do you have that peace? Are you reconciled to God? And if you are not sure, let's talk. And if that peace is yours, if you have received it, if you have believed it, then when the time comes when all of your inner peace is stolen, and Lord knows in the last 18 months, there's been plenty of opportunities for that to happen and more to come. Is it your practice to hold up everything that you're losing in the way of inner peace up against the peace that you have with him? I don't. I need to. A film documents people totally misunderstanding what the ark should be to us. A survey from 15 years ago documents a profound misunderstanding of who is God to us. But in Jesus, we have the exact imprint of his nature far more so than the ark ever would or could. And that's why I think if you wanted to take it all in one sentence, it boils down to a prayer of Augustine who said this, You never go away from us, yet we have difficulty in returning to you. Come, Lord, stir us up, call us back, kindle and seize us, be our fire and our sweetness. Let us love. Let us run. Let's pray. Father, it was one of your prophets who said, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This you have promised. Help us to find peace in your presence and believe in that. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The peace of the Lord be with you. Beloved, as the adage says, be kind to everyone you meet, for everyone is fighting a hard battle, and that is true of us all. Be kind. Greet one another, will you? Peace be with you.